This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Terry Tate. Terry is a clinical nurse specialist, a teacher, and a humorist who offers keynotes and workshops primarily for healthcare organizations, survivor groups, and other communities. She's a down-to-earth, inspirational teacher, disguised as a stand-up comedian. Her unique brand of humor shines hilariously into the darkest corners of the human experience. She visited these dark places, most notably during two near-fatal bouts of disfiguring oral cancer. With her one-woman show, Shopping as a Spiritual Path, Terry has re-emerged from illness to a new wholeness, committed to illuminating the way for others as they discover their own path to healing, purpose, and passion. With Sounds True, Terry Tate has released a new book called A Crooked Smile, which recounts her experiences through her cancer diagnosis, multiple surgeries, and a spiritual journey she never expected to traverse. It tells years of living in a crucible of inner growth and shares her surprising adventures with unlooked-for helpers, shamanic guides, and unexpected openings to spiritual sources of wisdom and healing. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Terry and I spoke about tapping inner guidance, how she learned to do this, and how, in many ways, she says this was the prize of her ordeal with oral cancer. She also talks about her discovery of an inner voice she calls the vile bitch upstairs, and also another inner voice that she calls the girl in the closet, and how these discoveries were critical to her healing process. Terry reads from her new book, A Crooked Smile, and finally, she shares with us the greatest lessons that she's learned in receiving what she calls 25 bonus years of life. Here's my conversation with Terry Tate. Terry, in your book, A Crooked Smile, you talk about all of the various challenges, the physical challenges that you went through, through two bouts of a disfiguring oral cancer. And I'd love to give our listeners a sense of the physiological changes, if you will, that you've gone through, through this process. Okay, I would be happy to do that to the best of my ability. Uh, without getting too gory, I hope. Uh, the first occurrence uh, started with a sore under my tongue, and it took several months for me to get a diagnosis. There were I went to lots of different healers and doctors, and everybody had a different theory, and it wasn't until some months later that someone did a biopsy and found that it was cancer. I had a surgery during which they removed the cancer, a portion of my tongue, and the nodes down my neck, and said that they had gotten it all. After that, I was not really, once I healed, I looked and sounded pretty much as I had before, so that people could see me and not know that I had the surgery. Eighteen months later, I started getting symptoms that were vaguer. There was no particular spot this time, just pain and tingling. And But it again took several months to diagnose. And by that time, I had a tumor the size of a golf ball under my tongue. That surgery was not so gentle. 
It lasted 24 hours, and in seven attempts, they removed more of my tongue, more than half of my lower jaw, and uh, lymph nodes all over the area. They attempted to rebuild my jaw by taking uh, part of my left hip, and that failed seven times because the vessels didn't work, and they added extra vessels and ended up uh, doing another surgery wherein they installed a titanium bar to replace my jaw and brought tissue from my breast and neck into my mouth so that uh, I now have part of my left breast on permanent loan to my mouth. Uh, and they took tissue from my ankle and my hip. So I have a very unique physiology. And whenever I go to the doctor for anything, you can be there for a rash, and they want to see my whole body because they've never seen one like it. Did that answer that question? It did, and thank you for all the detail as odd and difficult as it is, I wanted to give our listeners who can't see you right now but can hear you a sense of what you've gone through. So thank you for that. Uh And I'm curious, so here after this 24-hour surgery, what was the process like for you of coming back to life, if you will, in this new physical form? Well, um, you know, and and I'm I'm a talker, so if I go into too much detail, stop me. But I spent several days on a ventilator in the ICU, and then a couple of weeks on the head and neck cancer floor where I had more tubes than anyone had ever seen. And I'm a nurse by training, but fled immediately into psychiatric nursing because I'm not fond of gore and I like patients who keep their secretions on the inside. So I was not at all comfortable in what they called a body but didn't feel like one at that point. I say in the book that I felt a little like the character that James Joyce uh, described by saying he lived a, a short distance from his body. And that was how I felt in the hospital. And there were many moments there when I couldn't see how I would ever function again. I couldn't talk for a long time. I certainly couldn't eat. And it was a very, very slow, arduous process back to living in a body, particularly the talking and the eating parts. And um, talking is not only, you know, not only constitutes every career I've ever pursued, being a therapist and a hypnotherapist and a speaker and a consultant, but it's also my favorite hobby. And I often felt and, in fact, told my best friend before the surgery that if it looked like I wasn't going to be able to talk, I didn't really think I wanted to be around. And um, also up there among my favorite activities is eating, and that actually continues to be a challenge, but I've managed to master it uh, sufficiently that I can get down most of the things that I love. But it was a very long process, and just as I had begun to recover from the surgery, I had radiation for seven weeks, which again shut me up and made eating impossible. And then the bar that they had installed came loose during the radiation, and that required another surgery to take that out. And then the doctors wanted to do yet another surgery to use my hip or a metal bar or another bone to replace the bar they'd removed. And that was when I tapped in to the inner guidance that was really the the best prize of this whole ordeal um, and knew in my heart that if I ever got into another, if I got into another patient gown at that point, I wasn't getting out. So didn't have the surgery. 
Now talk a little bit about that tapping into your inner guidance, especially as you talk about that being, quote unquote, the prize. Tell me how yes, that happened and, and how you experience inner guidance. Okay. Um, that, that was a real turning point, not only in the cancer journey, but in my life in general. Prior to that, there had been a fair amount of agreement among the experts as to what to do, but their opinions diverged at that point, and having just the one mouth, I was going to have to decide for myself if I was going to have more surgery, and if so, what kind. I had, prior to that, you know, I'd always been fairly intuitive. I've always been a seeker. I'm a mental health type. I've pursued a lot of different spiritual paths. But I had never until then made such an important decision based primarily on my own wisdom. And I, um, as I, in looking back on it, I now see that the voice, the, really the only voice that I had trusted prior to that was the critical voice in my head that I refer to as the vile bitch upstairs. And that voice had been so ubiquitous throughout my life that before the cancer, I had thought she was all there was to me. But the the cancer slowed me down and shut me up long enough that I was forced inside and heard then other voices. The, the first was um, one that I, it came with an image of a dehydrated and emaciated woman child of indeterminate age that I that fly, I flashed on as I was out taking a walk when I was trying to recover from one of the surgeries. And I, as I gradually tried to get to know her, decided that this was the part of myself that I had shut away because it was too needy. And without sounding too Californian or too woo-woo, there's a part of me that believes that, that that needy part really wanted to get my attention. And it took something this serious to get me away from taking care of other people and focus on myself. And it was in getting to know that part that I had disowned I believe that I was led to this voice of wisdom. And the way it shows up for me is that I, and I don't know what possessed me to do this, but um, I was on an airplane flying down to my parents. Um, it was the first time I'd gone anywhere after the surgery and radiation. And I wrote in my journal, what do I do? And uh, I was guided to write a little symbol in my journal, and then I just sort of wrote automatically. And then another symbol, which to me signaled the end of this other voice. And I've been doing that ever since. Um, and when uh, I have a question, you know, as big as do I have this surgery, or as minor as, you know, what do I do today? Uh, I'll write a question and then put the symbol and wait for the answer. And I've never had to wait very long. What is the symbol? I'm curious about that. If you Well, it's like uh, a little sort of wedge. It's like a, a pointed um, parentheses. And when you see that symbol that's somehow associated with kind of opening this automatic writing channel that you trust? Right. And I, and I do now get, you know, that sort of information physically without writing it uh -huh. at times. And I'll do things like muscle testing and, 
and all of that. And I, I believe that that we all have that wisdom. And you know, not everybody's as out there as I am, so you don't have to name it in order to trust it. Yeah, one of the questions I have is. How does somebody know? Because I think this comes up for a lot of people. Great, I need guidance in my life. I don't necessarily have a situation that's as desperate as, you know, Terry Tate was in about what approach to take to healing. But I have things in my life, you know, should I break up with this person? Should I leave my job, et cetera? And those feel every bit as desperate in the moment because I've been in those situations too. And I, you know, I'll try automatic writing, but I don't trust what comes out of my pen. It's a bunch of, you know, it says this, then it says that. It contradicts itself. It's not so coherent. Right. I don't trust it. How come Terry got writing that she trusts? You know, I, I want to be like that. Uh, well, it may be the gift of desperation. I'm not sure, but I think that it's probably more a function of continuing to play with it and rely on it in, you know, start small with, you know, issues where the stakes aren't quite so high. I being sort of a drama queen started with very high stakes, but uh, start with little things and see how it goes. You know, I'm, I can't promise that that internal work is what led to that voice and trusting it. But I'm pretty sure that was true for me. And so it was it was a process wherein I learned to light myself better um, on the inside than I did when I looked good on the outside. And I feel like if there's one thing that I've learned that's applicable to everybody, uh, it's that whole notion of being gentle with ourselves and learning to accept ourselves as is, whatever the as is, is. And um, for me, you know, it was an obvious disfigurement. For other people who look great, there are things that, you know, I mean, we all have things that we're not crazy about about ourselves, and it's learning to embrace, be gentle with those parts, and eventually come to accept and at least like, if not love them, that I think opens the way. All right, let's talk a little bit about this being gentle with ourselves. You talked about the vile bitch upstairs as mm-hmm. a critical voice inside your head that previously Uh you were quite identified with previously. And I think a lot of people can connect to that. You know, I definitely have a vile bitch upstairs. So my question is for people who say, yeah, I know what that's like. I hear that voice. How can I be gentle with myself? How have you learned to be gentle with yourself when that voice says, you know, you shouldn't have said that on the radio or to that person or you know, says all kinds of things to us about our bodies and, you know, look at your thighs, look how much ice cream, you know, et cetera. And she said a lot of that, believe me. That was one of the things when I became disfigured, it was like, oh, damn, I wish I would have liked my thighs better. Um, So I, yes, I think, you know, I believe that that's one of the reasons I stuck around was to be a cautionary tale to like what you have now and don't wait until it, you know, it gets excised. Um, but I think it really, it's not an easy lesson. I mean, I'm a nurse and I, my career was speaking to nurses around the country, telling them that they can't be any nicer to their patients that they can't take any better care of their patients than they do of themselves. And I believed that wholeheartedly. And it was a little embarrassing when I came down with cancer and had to say, well, maybe I'm not practicing what I preach. And I, I think in answering your question, to just step back from that critical voice and realize that that's not you. It's the voice of fear. And I've, I've come to uh, appreciate 
the the bitch herself. I mean, I talked about firing her when I found the gentler voices and buying her a condo in Boca <laughs> and um, and telling her that you know she'd ha- she'd done. 70 years of, uh, or however many it was at the time, 55, 45, whatever, uh, of faithful service, and she could now take it easy. So I think it starts with being gentle with that cruel voice, maybe looking at where it comes from. I mean, I think that, you know, the vile bitch took a lot of lessons from my mom, who, bless her heart, was afraid all the time and didn't know how else to express it. Did that idea of firing her and sending her to a condo in Florida, does that work? Hey, I'm going to fire you. Did that work? Uh, Sometimes. I mean, the minute I got tired or at least stressed out, she was on a red eye back um, <laughs> and um, and attempted to take over, which she could do for short pieces of time. But the, between the girl in the closet and the guides, it became clear to her that she was no longer in charge. Now, let's talk a little bit about this other, could I call it a sub-personality? I don't know if that's how you'd refer sure. to it, but the girl yeah. in the closet. Uh-huh. So this is the needy part of you right. that she was hidden away and you wanted nothing to do with her? Right. And what was the importance for you of getting to know the girl in the closet? Because I also think this is probably something a lot of us can relate to. Some part of us that's needy. I mean, being needy is, in general, not that attractive in our culture. No, and no, it's not in the culture. And in you know many many families, there are generations of unmet needs that get passed down from one to another. And if you didn't get your needs met when you were little, then where do you find the wherewithal to meet the needs of your kids unless you've done a lot of work on yourself? And, you know, generations before mine had more basic needs to deal with than that. So I think that um, it's, it's really... Uh, something that, that coming to accept that we didn't get those needs met is not easy, but I think that it's important and to accept the fact that our parents didn't get their needs met, so how are they going to meet ours? For me, it was, I mean, I really um, wasn't, I mean, I sort of looked for her because when I, you know, I'm a mental health type, and I lived in Ann Arbor when I was diagnosed. So there were all manner of mental health suggestions about what had caused this. And that was the era of John Bradford and the inner child work, which I had always been a little repulsed by. Not him. I think his work is brilliant, but the whole idea of the inner child, I was way too defended to believe that I had one. And uh, but I did start watching videotapes about and read his books, and and found them valuable, and tried to write letters to this inner child. And it took a very long time because she was pissed, and she wasn't coming out at the first invitation. She didn't trust me, and with good reason. So it took a long time. And a lot of sort of digging. Um, And then I was out for a walk one day. And um, and this is a little aside, but uh, I the walk I had just crossed Z Road in uh, Ann Arbor, and when I had my first conversation with Jennifer, the acquisitions director at Sounds True, I learned that. Her grandfather was Mr. Zeeb, and Zeeb Road had been named for him. Hmm. And she was born in the hospital where I had my first surgery. Hmm. So that was one of many miracles. But I was walking down the road and had this image of this dehydrated, emaciated, just really shriveled up 
woman child of indeterminate age huddled in the corner of a dusty closet. And that was, and I got it, that that was a part of me that I'd locked away. And it literally took decades to get her out and flesh her out. And the last image I had of her was me carrying her piggyback, and she was quite chubby, freckled, and wearing pigtails. And I didn't feel frightened of her, or uh, and I was happy to carry her, and I was happy to um, to go in the direction she wanted to go. It, it was, in fact, a conversation with her that was my first ever public story. I, you know, I was a speaker before the cancer, and afterwards I realized that the girl in the closet had not really wanted to be up on stage in front of thousands of people and was a little resentful that I dragged her there. And so it was clear to me that if I ever hoped to be back on the stage, I was going to have to have her on board. And so the first the first story I told in public was at a Cancer is a Turning Point conference in front of about 1,200 people, and it was my conversation with the girl in the closet. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned here that you were a speaker before... Uh-huh your oral cancer, and also right. that being a verbal person is something that's always been important to you. And, you know, one of the things that I'm curious about how you worked through is just the grief involved in having, you know, one of your greatest joys and talents impacted in this way. I mean, I'm imagining, you know, like if a surgeon can't do surgery anymore because right. they injure their hands or, you know, here I am, I'm a, I'm a speaker, presenter, what that, just going through that. Now, here you are, you're speaking beautifully. I understand every word you're saying, but I'm sure at some point that was questionable whether oh, or yeah. not it would work. Your vocal function would be so clear. I can just imagine the terror and the grief of that. Yes, I remember really vividly the first time that it dawned on me that this might all impact my ability to talk. I was interviewing surgeons for the big surgery, and uh, I, my sister, who was really amazing in this whole process, had found surgeons in various hospitals, and I was interview I was interviewing the one at Michigan near my house and he made some reference to uh that they would have to do a tracheotomy if they removed my jaw. And I flash back on being a nursing student and uh having to to suction the tracheotomy of one of my patients and remembered that he couldn't talk. And I also remembered him smoking a cigarette through a tracheotomy hole, which is a a visual that I could live without. But um, (laughs) it dawned on me that I might not talk again. And I really freaked out. And I I stopped the surgeon and said, are you saying that, that I might not be able to talk? And he said, well, you know, that's a possibility but likely you'll speak, but I don't know how well your voice will go down in business settings. And he turned out, he did what turned out to be a really accurate uh, impersonation of what I would sound like. And um, it was, you know, it, it was not something, I, and my, my clear response was, oh, I'll use it to my marketing advantage. But I wasn't so confident on the inside. And, yes, that was the hardest part. And after, you know, they said that the radiation might also impact my vocal cords in such a way that I wouldn't speak. And I didn't for a month after the treatments. And um, it was... 
I mean, it was really not talking and dying were vying for first place on my <laughs> list of peers. And it was not clear which one was ahead. Um, it was terrifying. And, I, you know, I would write, but believe me, clever repartee suffers when you're writing on an etch-a-sketch. Uh, you know, the conversation is way on down the road when you've written, you know, your your pithy comment. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, the other thing, Terry, is that you are, I think, a classically beautiful woman. You're tall, you're thin, you're elegant, you have long fingers. You know, you're, you are, you're just a gorgeous woman. And I'm wondering... Well, thank you. You're welcome. And here, you mean, you, you, there's a picture of you on the cover of A Crooked Smile, and it's a beautiful picture, and I'm looking at it right now as we're speaking. And I'm wondering about that process for you, about the impact on your physical appearance and how you dealt with that. Yes, that, that's, um, that was another area. And, you know, ironically, and, and maybe it's, it was a blessing all along, but I grew up in a suburb and in a family where appearances mattered a lot. And at a very early age, it was clear to me that that was not what was important in life. And so I was always a little rebellious about that. And I, you know, I can't say that I never dressed to meet the very tight dress code in high school, but I never was a lot into hairdos and makeup and that kind of thing. And I, I always sort of rebelled against that. And which I guess is now a blessing because I know of women who, women probably more than men, maybe men as well, but women particularly who died rather than having the assault on their appearance that I went through. And I, I think that I was not, you know, one of the gifts, I guess, of the vile bitch upstairs was I never thought I was that attractive beforehand. And I always thought my sister was prettier. And um, it's only now looking at photos of before that I realized that I actually was beautiful then. So I hadn't, you know, I, I wasn't that attached and I was sufficiently insecure that I never really knew what I was losing. That said, I, um, and I, I, I didn't look at myself in the mirror for a very long time. I had my sister cover all the reflective surfaces in the hospital room and I studiously avoided looking in the mirror for a very long time afterwards. And I only gradually got to know myself in my new container after I had become fairly certain that I was going to be in this container for long enough to deal with it. You know, there was a long time where, you know, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to be around, so it really didn't matter what I looked like. And thankfully, I was married at the time to a man who claimed to be able to see my inner beauty. 
and I bought that hook, line, and sinker. The fact that he later opted for a younger, blonder, more symmetrical woman um, was hard to take when it happened, but he was there, and he was wonderful in the, uh, the early stages. So that helped, and he's a very good-looking man, so I used to be sure that people wondered what in the hell he was doing with somebody who looked like me, but um, I was, you know, I was sort of comforted. As I say in the book, when I first started dating him, I felt better just walking next to him. So, um, so there was that, and I just... Um, it's It's been a challenge. One of my sons is a visual artist, and I know it was real hard for him to adjust to the way I looked because he sees things in a way that that other people don't. But we were having lunch one day not too very long after the worst part of it, and he looked across at me and said, you know, I think you're more beautiful now than you've ever been. And uh, that's, that, you know, that kind of acceptance from my kids. And um, I have a beautiful granddaughter now who's only known me like this and loves me as I am. And, um, and I have just the most magnificent people in my life. I mean, it was standing room only at Book Passage on Tuesday night, and I got the one of the first standing ovations in Book Passage history. So I've been really, really blessed in that way. This was a book launch event it was a, for a, a crooked my first smile. Launch. Yeah, and Anne Lamott introduced me. I I started visualizing that twenty. Two years ago, when I worked my way into Annie's class, and it, and that night was as good or better than I could have envisioned it. Well, it's pretty cool to have Annie Lamont write it a foreword to your book cool. and it introduce you. Yeah, cool. that's that's some uh, beautiful good fortune there for a crooked smile. Yes, well, that was that's another amazing story of how I met her, um, which I don't know if we have time for, but I could try to be brief. Let's go for it. Well, I was, um, after the cancer, my kids were living out here. I was living in Ann Arbor, and when it was pretty clear that I was probably going to die soon, I well, a doctor had said that I probably would, and so I decided to come out here and tell my kids that I was going to die, and I fell in love with it so much that I borrowed an apartment here and started spending time out here and time in Ann Arbor. I was back in Ann Arbor. I was driving one of my sons, my son Justin, to the airport, and we had NPR on, and which I didn't usually listen to the radio in those days, and I heard this woman talking, and I said, that is the funniest person I've ever heard in my life. Who is that? And I, they said it was this woman named Anne Lamont. So I dropped Justin at the airport, went back to Ann Arbor, went immediately to a bookstore and said, do you have anything by Anne Lamont? They laughed and took me over to the Anne Lamont section where I bought a bunch of books and learned that she lived in Northern California. My one friend in Sausalito at the time I had told me that she was taking a writing class. So I called her and I said, was that any, by any chance Anne Lamont who was teaching that class? She said, yes, it was. I said, well, I want to take it, too. And then she laughed and said, well, go ahead, call Book Passage, and uh, good luck with that. And I called Book Passage and said, I want to take Anne Lamont's class. And then they laughed and said, yes, you can be the 151st person on the waiting list. And I was reading Bird by Bird, and got to the section where Annie writes about how one of the downsides of being a writer 
is that you're alone too much and you start to have crazy thoughts and you go to the mirror and you see a white spot under your tongue and you're sure it's oral cancer and that the surgeon will have to cut out half your jaw and no one will ever want to kiss you again as if they ever did. So I decided, well, one of the gifts of almost dying is you do the things today that you might have put off. And I figured I'd suffered enough. I was going to use this. So I wrote a letter and said, Dear Anne Lamott, you're the funniest person I've ever met or ever heard. I'll do anything to be in your presence. And sometimes that spot really is oral cancer. And I asked my friend to take her to class with her not expecting much, but figuring I had nothing to lose. And the next day, Annie called me and said, come anytime you're in town. Now that is a very cool story. Thank you for sharing that. Uh-huh. Now, I would say something about you, Terry, that you said about hearing Annie Lamont on the radio, which is you are a very wicked, funny person. And it's come across some in our conversation, and it certainly comes across throughout A Crooked Smile. And I wonder if you'd read for our listeners a passage or two from the book. Absolutely. I will read one, actually, um, that, let's see here, I'm trying to find one that, that um, relates. Okay, this uh, relates to coming to California. This was um, after the surgery and um, after um, the radiation, and um, I was I, so I was beyond the classical treatment. And so I was looking at all the alternatives. Uh, my my then husband was a rolfer, and so he was very into looking for alternative treatments. And um, so he wanted me to go to a live foods program. So we were uh, he was uh, pushing for that. Now that I could eat a little, I decided it was time to work on my diet in case I lived long enough for nutrition to make a difference. Jeff started promoting live foods again. He was ready to clear his calendar for two weeks at the end of June so we could take a part in a residential training program at a live food center. I needed to see the place before I would consider it. The day of the open house at what we now called food camp dawned bright and beautiful. We drove along winding country roads, relishing the burgeoning greenery and blossoms, and hoping that the food we were about to eat didn't come from the run-down farms we were passing. Then I realized that food camp was one of the run-down farms. The shabbiness extended to the buildings and the rubble-covered grounds. I had seen less depressing back wards in state hospitals. In sharp contrast, the inhabitants were loaded with zeal and stories of miraculous healings from eating raw. One especially gaunt, exuberant fellow gave us a tour. The residential quarters with hard, narrow cots where we would sleep for two weeks. The bookstore with its 15 books. The colonic center, whose purpose was obvious. And the wheat grass greenhouse with windows so dirty that photosynthesis was the real miracle. The pinnacle of the tour was the kitchen, where a swarming mass of smiling people were busy not cooking. And then there was a grand buffet. I took a plate, of, a plate and fell into line behind Jeff. There were platters of raw vegetables, big tossed salads loaded with sprouts, nut loaf, 
and Rothlite dehydrated crackers better used as weapons than snacks. <laughs> I had seven lower teeth. Ensure and smoothies were still the mainstays of my diet. Most of the dishes on this crunchy smorgasbord came with cayenne or other peppers to introduce a little flavor into the bland repast. So anything I could chew would be too spicy for my radiated mouth. The bitch nagged. You'd better at least try something. This might be the very thing that saves you. But there was no way I could eat any of it. I sat sipping tea and feeling like I had at junior high dances while everyone, especially Jeff, wolfed down heaps of food. By the time we left, Jeff was feeling the curative powers of eating raw and was ready to enroll in camp. I don't know whether the depression or starvation would get me first, <laughs> but I know I wouldn't make it out of there alive. I'd rather go to San Francisco and visit my kids. In truth, I didn't I hadn't given up on food camp. I wanted to be able to tell one of those miraculous healing stories my myself someday. A few days later, I went alone to a new oncologist to check out the continuing symptoms in my mouth and to get a refill for Rotsaset. I didn't know much about oral cancer, the doctor said in a gentle voice, so I read up on it last night in preparation for your visit. Her honesty increased my faith in her. It had been, a while, it had been two years since I'd heard a doctor say, I don't know, although clearly many of them hadn't. She continued, Having had two recurrences, the chances of a third are extremely high. I let her finish and asked for a refill of Rotsaset, and then I fled, past smiling volunteers in the quaint gift shop, and into the parking lot shaded by budding trees, which, unlike me, were bursting with new life. My first impulse was to call Jeff, as I had in each of the previous crisis moments. No, I needed to be with this news alone for a while. After all, I would be dying alone. Now that all my efforts at regaining health had proven futile, it was time for a big, strong cup of coffee. I found a trendy cafe, chose a small table near the pastry case, and stared blankly out the window. I reveled in the taste of the blackish brew and a large, luscious chocolate eclair as I pondered what to do with what little was left of my life. There was a curious freedom in not having to try anymore. Suddenly, clarity seized me. I rushed to the payphone and dialed Jeff's office number. Fuck food camp, I told him. We're going to California. What I didn't realize at the time was that California is food camp. Oh, my. Well, you are laugh out loud funny, Terry. Now, here this doctor says there's a high chance of a reoccurrence, but you haven't had a reoccurrence. Is that correct? That's correct. Do you have a fear of a reoccurrence at this point? You know, I, um, yes and no. I, um, I've had a lot of cancer scares in the intervening 23 years, uh, which is, you know, really... Uh, the fact that I can say 23 years is a miracle. It is. Since I had a 2% chance of surviving. Um, and I, I hadn't had a, um, a bad cancer scare for many, many years. And as I was preparing the final draft 
to uh, get to Haven, it sounds true, I had another one. Um, I can read you a paragraph about it, which will maybe answer your question. Much as I wish it were otherwise, I accept that I will never really be done with cancer. I recently had pain in my mouth that felt very much like my recurrence. It was my worst scare in decades, complete with an oral biopsy under pulse local anesthetic and eight days of waiting for results. Oddly, I wasn't as panicked as I expected to be. I felt held by God in a new way and was able to sleep and spent quiet time finishing this book. I looked back on the 25 bonus years I've been granted and felt really blessed. There's still a lot I'd like to do in this lifetime, but I finally saw what Jeff meant when he said, I'll be okay whatever happens. So I've, most of the scares my guy, including that one, my guides have told me that it wasn't cancer. And increasingly, I believe them. Um, to say that it doesn't scare me at all would be a lie. Well, I just want to say one thing, Terry. Here you were given only a 2% chance of being anything like in the situation where you are now 23 years later. And I just want yeah. to take a moment to say that I'm so glad you're here. Thank you very, very much, Sammy. That means a lot. Um, and I, I'm glad I'm here, too. And I mean, I, I, without sounding maudlin, I can't begin to express to you how happy I am to have a crooked smile come from Sounds True. There is not a publisher on the planet that I would prefer. Mm. And the experience has been just amazing. I'm happy, so happy to hear that. And what I'd love to know is, here you were only given a 2% chance, and yet here you are. And uh -huh. Do you think it's your incredible sense of humor that buoyed you? It doesn't sound like it was the raw food. I mean, do you just say this no, is a mystery? No, it was not the raw food. That's right. And it, was, it might have been the ice cream that I've had virtually every day since. But um, that's the one thing I've always, I've pretty much been able to eat. Uh, not right in the beginning, but for a long time. I certainly think that, that humor has had a lot to do with it. Um, you know, I mean, I, I say the, that, you know, it's, there's a question of why me in terms of uh, having gotten the cancer, and um, then there's a question of why me in terms of survival when the vast, vast majority of people who've had what I had didn't. And I think that, I think humor had to do with it. I think that, I, you know, I did a lot of treatment, uh, both um, alternative and standard. I'm sure that helped. I had a huge amount of support. I, you know, the amount of love in my life then and now um, is really tremendous. Um, and I do believe that, I believe that our bodies have an internal healing ability that we're only beginning to tap, and one that unfortunately Western medicine doesn't really respect as much as I think it should. I think it could be, I would like to redesign the healthcare delivery system so that it supports rather than diminishes that power because I think we all have it. I think something mystical beyond the medical was at work, um, and I don't think it was up to me. I, you know, I hope that my attitude and sense of humor had something to do with it, but I certainly don't feel that that was the only factor. In the epilogue of the book, Terry, you ask these two really interesting questions that you answer. 
And even if you don't answer them exactly the same way as you did at the end of the book, I wanted to bring these two questions forward. One question is that you asked this question that you just referred to. Why did this happen to me? What's my response? And you said that you got an immediate response to that question. I did. I was driving out of Sausalito in one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And I got, and it just flashed in my head, why did this happen to me? And it wasn't a wimpy, whiny question, which is not to say I'm not capable of being wimpy and whiny, because <laughs> I am. But I wasn't in that particular moment. It was more a matter-of-fact question. And uh, the answer I got was, you wanted your woundedness to show. Hmm. Hmm. That's like something, does that connect in some way to the neediness that you talked about before that was so hidden and, you know, it sounds like even hidden from you? Absolutely. Um, as I say in the epilogue, I, you know, it took me a while to believe that. Uh, but one of the things that the, that the girl in the closet said to me in that first performance conversation was, you know, I did everything to get your attention and I thought I was going to have to die and take you with me. And so I think that that, you know, and, and I've thought about this a lot lately, what with all the, you know, what what happens when we hide our woundedness? Because not everybody's disfigured the way I am, but everybody has wounds. And the world we live in is, in my view, way too focused on hiding those wounds and trying to be, um, trying to look like we have it all together, both physically and in every other way. And I believe that what happens when we do that is that we project the parts of ourselves that we've disowned onto other people. And it doesn't take much watching of the news these days to find an example of that. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not happy with ourselves, and we're not fully who we really are. I believe that my ability to feel all emotions, um, the, the good ones and the bad ones that we label, but all of them was hidden away with that girl, mm -hmm. as was my creativity. I have two geniusly creative sons and a wonderfully creative granddaughter, but I had no idea that I was creative until I got in there. And all those treasures were locked away in that closet with that girl. Mm -hmm. And then, Terry, you say after, you know, asking this question, why did this happen to me, and having this answer come to you, you say a better question, actually, might be, what has all this taught me? And I thought this would be a good place to bring our conversation to a close, to hear what has all of this taught you? <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole epilogue, but I know the highlights, and uh, and they're, you know, gratitude, forgiveness, and acceptance. Um, acceptance of myself as I am, and I'm, I'm always trying to figure out if accepting myself allows me to help accept other things and other people better or vice versa, but I think that it's, uh, it's a mutual kind of thing, that acceptance of oneself leads to acceptance of others, and it works the other way as well. Um, at the end of my solo show, Shopping is a Spiritual Path, I say, people have always told me God loves me, and um, I never knew what he saw in me, but <laughs> I'm trying to learn to love myself as God does, or to put it in shopping terms, to love myself as is.
And if there's one thing that I've learned, I think that's it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to put in one final question here. All right. Which is, our program is called Insights at the Edge. And one of the things that I'm always curious to know is what somebody's current edges in their life. And what I mean by that is where you're experiencing your own kind of growing edge as a person, what that is for you. Okay. Um, well, and this is, this is by way of advertising as well as answering your question. Having gotten um, a crooked smile off of my bucket list, the only thing left is a relationship that uh, that actually really works well. I mean, I've had three wonderful husbands who were perfect at the time um, and other great relationships, but I would really like a relationship um, coming from the place where I am now of accepting myself so that rather than specializing in men with potential, as I've done in the past, that I would have a relationship with someone who I accepted as they were, who accepted me as I am. Mm-hmm. Well, Terry Tate, you are one funny woman and a beautiful writer. And as I said, a blessing to all of us that you've had these now almost 25 bonus years. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm so glad that A Crooked Smile with a foreword by Annie Lamont is out in the world. Congratulations on the new book, and thank you. Thank you for being on Insights at the Edge. Thank you, Tammy, so much. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>